Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we're going to talk about the new personnel vetting questionnaire, or the PBQ as it's called. For years, agencies have had new hires fill out the standard Form 86 when the job requires a security clearance. But the PVQ is set to replace the SF-86 and several other forms in the coming years. The PVQ includes important updates on questions around marijuana use, mental health, and other issues. For more on what's new and notable in the PVQ, I spoke with John Barry, a security clearance attorney at Barry & Barry Law Firm. Hey John, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it, Justin. Thanks for having me on. And John, this new form includes some very specific changes that OPM is trying to make here. Let's start with the changes around questions on marijuana. The government has broken out those questions and is trying to be a little bit more liberal with its approach to prior marijuana use, right? It looks like the form is is liberalizing a bit on the marijuana use, but at the same time, yeah, especially for the IC clients, I don't know that they're going to follow it. So are they really going to say 90 days and you're good? I don't think so. Because you know, while you have the SF-86, you know, for the intelligence community, you're going to have polygraph and they're going to dive into these details and, and you're going to be tell, telling them the same information anyways. So I, I do think that it's going to take a lot more thought and effort to complete the form. It's looking at the Section 13 marijuana and cannabis derivative use. I know that's going to raise some questions because people are going to be like, okay, what is derivative use? Oh, that's not CBD or is it CBD? I, I have had intelligence agencies deny security clearances or add on uh, SCI clearances for using target CBD oil. So it looks good, but I'm not certain how, like, especially the IC is going to interpret it. I think that's an important point just on the fact that while this form is kind of you know, standard, the agencies overlay their own processes and adjudicative criteria in some cases, right? That's right. And it's sometimes hard to tell what that criteria is. Sometimes like some of the, you know, law enforcement agencies will give you a little bit of information on their on their website. Don't apply if it's been three years or don't apply if it's been X amount of time, but most won't. And it's kind of this undefined sort of I don't want to call it whole person concept, but whole drug concept. I don't think that people that have used it in college or a lot, a long time ago, I still think two years is a safe period of time with marijuana, especially if you haven't had a clearance during that time or weren't a law enforcement officer. So I don't think that the posts have changed. I think that maybe in a close case, it could make a difference like, you know, 90 days versus two years. But I think that the derivative use is going to confuse people. And some of some of the issues are, are interesting. It, you know, it looks like in the section 13 that that I pulled up have used marijuana or a cannabis derivative in the last 90 days. And it looks like if you say yes, but I'm not quite sure, but if you say yes, you go down to when within the last five years was the first time you used marijuana or a derivative, and then the laundry list of questions. So it looks to me like it, the 90 days triggers that question, but I'm not sure. I, if in the final form, if we see, you know, that just is number two, then really what's changed? Well, I mean, seven to five. And the other thing, which was interesting that I found, the question that always comes up to me is later on in that section 13, it, it asks if you illegally manufactured 
cultivated, trafficked, produced, transferred, shipped, received, or sold. Received or sold. You know, marijuana. It's like that's that's going to trigger almost everyone, anyways. So, I mean, I think it's I think it's a good good faith effort to try and like move us away because so many states have legalized it that it's confusing for a lot of individuals and they're like, well, I thought it was legal. And I'm like, well, it is legal by state, but not here. It doesn't mean they won't get past it, but it's still just a lot of questions and a lot more detail. Beyond the, the changes in marijuana questions, what do you see as some of the other notable changes in this form? I saw there were a lot of questions that were, you know, to me, said that, okay, we're going to look into the January 6th issues more. Like, what organizations do you belong to? Uh, there seemed to be also some more uh, increased questions about Guideline M technology, which I think is a very, especially with the society today, I think it's something they should be looking into more. And I think that's probably where a lot more issues are going to come up because as more people who are very familiar with technology get into these roles of investigators and, and adjudicators, not that they're not sufficient now, but a lot of people that know what some of these software and internet services are, we're going to probably go into that a lot more in adjudications. I think that that's going to be a a big point. Are you talking about the questions around illegally introducing, using, removing hardware, software, media from an IT system in the past five years? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Then those are new questions, right? That's, that seems pretty notable in light of the discord leaks and, and things like that. Right. I mean, it's always sort of been there, but it's like, depends on who's investigating you, you know, DOD, it may be an issue, may not be an issue, but for a lot of IC agencies, they'll dig into that during the polygraph. If you're, you know, going for an SCI or bear or base clearance with them. And so you'll get into it anyways. This just sort of like asks the questions, which I think is a good thing, you know, and I think that that's, that's probably where we should focus our time more on, I mean, as the government, uh, than on the marijuana usage issues. It's every state's done this almost, and we shouldn't have these two different standards. It's just, I don't know that we have the political will in either party to try and change the, the Controlled Substances Act. It's going to take like a bipartisan effort. And I'm not sure that that's a real election seller for anyone. So I think that we're left with kind of, you know, liberalizing it. And that's kind of what they're trying to do. But it's still there. And I think it's just going to be an agency by agency decision. I think DOD will be your most standard one, which will be which will probably give you a little bit more leeway on things. And another thing this form attempts to do is continue kind of an ongoing effort to destigmatize mental health treatment and the fact that it is very unlikely that it will impact your ability to go and get a security clearance. What's notable about the changes in the mental health section of this new questionnaire? One of the things I noted is, I mean, the item that has stayed pretty much the same is the question that asks, have you ever been diagnosed by a physician with psychotic disorder, schizophrenia, psychoaffective disorder, delusional disorder, bipolar mood disorder, borderline personality disorder, or antisocial personality disorder? So that's similar. But then they sort of drop down, you know, into these series of focusing on the last five years, you know, as opposed to focusing on forever, which is great because, you know, sometimes people have had mental health issues that have either stabilized or gone away. And that's that's important because you can have security clearance cases where we're talking about something that occurred in an episode like 10 years ago and or 15 years ago and you haven't had anything since and so you haven't had any treatment since that time because you're okay and you were treated and your doctor said you were fine 
So uh, I noticed also one of the questions is, if in the last five years, what is the name of the healthcare professional who diagnosed you? That's helpful because so many of these healthcare professionals retire, leave the business, and you know, then they're like, okay, what what happened? And it's hard to get documents. The other thing that that I found interesting is that in the past five years, have you been admitted to a hospital? You know, that's another narrowing because it's, it used to be ever. So I think that that's helpful. And I mean, this is really one of these things that, like, I mean, I've been handling security clearance cases, I think, 99, and it used to be back in those days, depression and anxiety could trigger adjudications. And so I'm just thankful to see that the forms are finally recognizing that nobody here gets gets out unscathed, <laughs> you know, that there's more, I guess the word to say is there more, not kindness, but more, slightly bit more understanding about about these health conditions. And so so this is good. I mean, they didn't take away any of the major categories. Oh, they did add some interesting questions, which I don't know what to make of them, but they're good questions. Uh, have you ever believed you had any of the following? Uh, psychotic symptoms, hearing, seeing, or smelling things that were not real, paraphrasing, or manic or hypomanic disorders or episodes, sustained periods of high energy, a plan to hurt or kill someone that you either acted upon or would have acted upon. And then the question of whether or not you sought treatment for in the last five years for these. I think those are those are good questions. I mean, they're they're fair because a lot of people don't get diagnosed too. I mean, I'm defending these individuals. So, you know, would I rather them not be in this situation? Yeah, sure. But I can see the government's purpose in asking these questions because a lot of people go undiagnosed. Yeah. In the original Federal Register notice about this new PVQ, OPM notes that it's trying to focus on the most serious mental health illnesses, not screen people out for cases of depression or anxiety. And so it seems as if they've done that with what we're seeing in this finalized form. Yeah, I believe so. I think that while they still have many of the same categories as in the in the previous iteration, it seems to be they're more focused on the last five years and, and how has your treatment been if you have an issue. Okay. And um, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the foreign connections piece in part B, but that was another section that they were trying to change or try to scope, I think, a little bit more narrowly might be the word. Uh, how do you read that? You know, I, I read it as as helpful. The one thing that was the biggest problem which seems to be a bit mended with this is just the the contacts themselves. It's like, I, I'll give you an example, Facebook. I can't tell you how many people are like, well, I've got 150 friends in different countries. And I'm, I'm like, okay, do we really want to or need to report this? And then we I sort of have them go through the contacts themselves, just put them in certain categories. If they're limiting it to foreign nationals, you know, who they have a relationship with or or some sort of legal obligation, like, you know, they own property together or something. I think that that's much more helpful than like everyone in the world. Of course, because you do the IC side of things, there's agencies like uh, Dulles Discovery, you know, that are going to want to especially do a deeper dive. What would those agencies be looking at beyond what might be laid out in this form? They could, you know, in a, in a polygraph, you could go into any number of things or in an investigative interview, like what other contacts aren't, aren't here. You said you went to China in 2018. Who do you know there? 
especially with some of the you know agencies more closely tied to national security, they're going to want to definitely do a deeper dive into the foreign contacts. But for everyone else, I think that this is going to be a little bit easier for them because there's this struggle as to, well, I knew they called me like one time or two times, but they hung up the second time. And you know, it's all these like little lists of, uh, especially people that have lived abroad or gone to school abroad, you know, you have a lot of classmates and such, and it can be a difficult task to track everything down and make sure you get it right. So it's helpful to limit it more than it has been. I think we've covered some of the big buckets that OPM highlighted they wanted to change in this form. Are, are you seeing anything else that might be particularly notable uh, for applicants or for agencies who are going to have to use this form? Well, I do think that we're going to get more and more um, into guideline M and technology and into into the internet. I mean, we have a lot of agencies are heavily into it now, but I think that just as as you know, software develops and the internet continues to develop, that's just going to be a, a major source of of questions because there's any number of of issues that can arise from that. People, it used to be people were like, well, I was leaving work, it was my last day and I downloaded like my resume and some other things. Oh, I had some stuff on there. Now it's like, did you transfer to the cloud? Did you, things are moving more into that. I mean, uh, the just overall, I think it's good. We are we are getting better on drug use, especially marijuana, like in terms of being getting a positive adjudication. We're getting better on mental health, which is great. Activities against the US government, uh, that's, Looks like they're digging more into that, more into, you know, guideline M issues with technology and such. It seems like it's moving in the right direction. I haven't counted the number of pages, but it's looking like, I wonder if we're just shy of 200, if we had the, all these pages together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I should note, we're looking at documents that I think purport to lay out, of course, what it, yeah. the drop-down menus, how they're going to work on a website, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, hopefully the the user experience on the new eApp website um, yeah. doesn't make folks go through 200 plus pages if they don't need to. Right. Yeah. If they, if they don't need to. And I mean, I think that there's always been a section at the end and I haven't been able to find it here yet, but I'm sure I can dig through it where you're able to explain things on what, because there's there's going to be questions about, well, what is derivative use? What is what is cannabis? What is this? What is that? And it's always helpful to be able to explain question section 21. This is what I meant. We didn't dive too deep into the piece. One of the pieces you highlighted actions against the U.S. government, as you mentioned earlier, obviously, after January 6th, uh, that's been such a big emphasis for many agencies. It was in the, at the start of the Biden administration, you know, domestic violent extremists and so forth. What What's in this form? that's new and notable in terms of actions against the US government. Well, in terms of the form and I and I don't have that that part of it in front of me. I was just leafing through it last night. It used to be just sort of like nobody ever tripped that wire and it seemed to be there were multiple questions and it seemed to be a lot more detailed in in that area than it had in the past because you know, I had never seen or maybe seen one case of anyone tripping guideline A, and it's like I know what I know what the intent was, and that's it's a good intent. You you want to make sure everyone is on board and not part of violent organizations if they are, or you know, such. But I think that that's 
that's going to be something we see going forward uh, a little bit more into that, which still shouldn't affect very many people. I still haven't seen, I mean, besides those cases, uh, January 6th, I still haven't seen too many agencies digging into connections with other organizations as, as an adjudicative guideline listed in the statement of reasons. So I don't know if it's going to make a big difference. It's just, I think they're going to ask a lot more questions about it. I see. So the intent might be to at least surface someone who is part of a explicitly neo-Nazi group that yeah. has, rhetoric, has rhetoric against the U.S. government. And, you know, those cases where it's pretty clear cut that maybe someone yeah. shouldn't be working for the U.S. government. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's good to ask those questions. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else that you think folks should be thinking about when it comes to how this form will be implemented, how the information will be used by investigators and adjudicators as part of this whole clearance process? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a little wait and see, right? You know, it's like the biggest question is to me will be, A, how's this going to be rolled out? Is it going to be rolled out all at once? Is it going to be a consistent application of it? Are we going to be using the old forms in some cases for a year or two? Because then it might get confusing for individuals. But I I, I doubt it's going to be like, okay, on April 5th, 2024, everyone's using a new form because it just, uh, it doesn't work like that. I do think that what's nice is the form is, you know, you can take pieces out if you, if you only need a public trust. And, you know, if you need a, a more substantial clearance, you just add the other sections in it. I think it makes it easier for investigators as they go through the forms and the questions. And I think once they get used to this, probably in a couple of years, it's going to be really smooth. But until then, maybe it'll be a little longer. Again, that was John Barry, a security clearance attorney at Barry and Barry Law Firm. To close out the show, here's a segment of my recent interview with Defense Intelligence Agency Chief Information Officer Doug Casa. Hey, Doug, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Absolutely. It's uh, been almost a year since we spoke last, and so this is a great time to get an update on all things DIA. Saw you speak at DOTUS uh, in yeah. Portland, Oregon in December, and you laid out some of your priorities and Still at the top of that list, no surprise, is modernization of JWIX, the Joint Worldwide Intelligence Communication System. Just to start things off, can you tell us a little bit about where that major project is at here in January of 2024? Sure. Yeah. So we are actually in our second year of JWIX modernization. So things are moving quite along. We've made our major contract award, got the effort staffed up. So that was a that was a big success for uh, last year since we last spoke. You might remember when we talked last that I said JWIC's modernization was broken out into really three phases, the first being technology refresh. So this is replacing a lot of the aged network hardware, so things like routers and switches and encryptors uh, that we rely on for that connectivity, the secure connectivity, and updating those that are critical nodes that make up that web of the JWIX network. And so we're well on our way to finishing that. But part of it is more than just a technical refresh. It was also redundancy in network lines. So the circuits that we rely on to provide connectivity around the world, but also redundant equipment. So if and when equipment does fail, we have a second stack of equipment at our core nodes that we can fail over to. And in many cases, more than a a second stack, we've got full redundancy across all the critical network components. That's really been our focus over the past year is building that up around all of our uh, functional areas that rely on JWIX. The second piece of that that we've made a ton of progress on is in cybersecurity. 
And so part of that effort is we, we've traditionally done an initial assessment of those agencies and locations that want to connect to JWICs, that have a requirement to connect to JWICs. And that started within just a single security assessment. And we've moved that to continuous assessments now. And we have what we call the JWIC Cyber Inspection Program that we've stood up. And we've completed this year several dozen inspections of existing users' site locations of JWICs. And that goes through the full end-to-end realm of cybersecurity. Everything from how user accounts are managed uh, to how hardware is managed in the sense of making sure that technical parameters and guidelines are implemented and patching is done. But beyond that, it also goes to things like, is there insider threat monitoring? How effective is it? You know, Are all of the policies that are defined by not just the DOD, but IC being followed when it comes to cybersecurity? And so that's been a combination of a virtual inspection program. In many cases, red teams, where we actually are looking at, is you know that penetrable from not just what do you look at it from like an adversary aspect, but for like an insider threat aspect of is there a response capability and how well does that response capability work? So we're actually actively testing that as part of our inspection process. When we look to the future, though, and we're going to start this within the next year, as you know, from National Security Memorandum 8 that defines the requirements for zero trust for federal agencies. And so our inspection program is going to also incorporate those requirements into it to where we're going to look at the maturity of agencies as they proceed down the various pillars of zero trust, the seven in all, really starting with the data pillar of how well are agencies managing things like comply to connect within their network domains, their local network domains that connect to JWIC. So that's been a big focus of us this past year. And then the third piece of that is getting to where a lot would consider it more of the AI realm of the automation of network management. So things like software-defined networking, network segmentation to where when an issue is identified, a performance issue, as an example, we have the automated routing to a more efficient and effective route for a network path, where that's been a very manual process in the past of failing over to other circuits or isolating networks that might need to be isolated that goes into more of an automated fashion through software-defined networking. And that, that's really where we're, we're headed in that third phase of JWIX. Uh, but we made a ton of progress in that. So uh, we're, we're very excited that, that that's continued. And uh, I mean, I will say when I first started this job six years ago, I would say like 80% of my time was you know, involved in troubleshooting network connectivity issues. And you know, since we've made a lot of these upgrades, especially on the technology refresh and getting some of that old hardware replaced, now it can really focus on the future and where we need to go. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, brought to you by Booz Allen Hamilton on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and all of our past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search Inside the IC wherever you get your podcasts.